I know that God is all there is. God is what I call that energy, that power, that the universe. That's all there is, is that one thing, that one beautiful, powerful, sweet, creative love is all there is. And I know that because it's all there is, that I am one of that. I am of that stuff. I have all that beauty, sweetness, power, grace. It's all mine. All I have to do is choose it. And I do. And I know that because that's true for me, it's true for everyone. It is true for all of us. So today, and on this Memorial Day weekend, in this singular time of loss, confusion, and above all change, I welcome the high ground of my faith. I know that while I cannot always conceive of what I need to do to thrive in this budding new world, I can lean into the resounding truth that the power and divine intelligence which created the giraffe and the oak tree and solar systems and paper clips, this power is still and always here now in, as, and through me and each of us. I know I cannot solve all the problems in front of me, but I can and do choose gratitude for all the good that I see every day. I let the power of possibilities flow through me, giving life to my thoughts and creating miracles. I remember that I don't have to know how good comes. I simply say, yes, please, thank you, more of this and better, and let that divine intelligence, which always says yes, take care of the how. I know this is a heady power and that I must wield it consciously with love and compassion for all and the rewards are beyond my imagining. This is the power of gratitude. I am so grateful for all those who have gone before me, those who have given their lives so that we all may live in this incredible land in freedom, peace, and bounty. I am grateful for those who planted the tree of awareness of the possibilities under whose shade we sit today. And I am grateful for the trees we plant today, the trees of love, community, peace, and hope, which are flourishing and providing shade for future generations. I close this prayer by releasing these words into the law, and I let go, and I let spirit do the perfect work. And so it is. So this whole month we've been working with the idea of listening to your heart. Hmm. And today we're going to look at uh, the idea of the path made clear. And that doesn't mean everything's cleared out of it. It means we get to clearly see the path. Our vision clarifies. And so we've been exploring this month the idea of a journey of the soul, five stages of the soul uh, on this journey. And we... Last week, explored the first two stages, the call and the search. And the call leads to the search. The call leads to the search. And the search then leads to guidance, and it leads to a path. And now we have to walk that path. 
you know, I drive by every once in a while, little trailheads for a couple of the trails around here, the watershed trail and stuff like that. And I look and I go, oh, look, there's the trailhead for the path. But until I park my car and get out of my car and go walk the path, I don't get to experience the benefits of that trail. And usually I just drive by and go to my house and sit down with some dessert and, and uh, watch TV and, and uh, don't get the benefits of the path. But we have to walk the path eventually. And many people stay in the search mode because it takes effort and application to walk the path. And it's so fun to say, oh, look at this. Oh, look at that. Uh, but it doesn't bring us to the experience and the growth we get from walking the path. And when we step onto the path and when we decide that we're really going to walk it, it brings up all of our hidden fears. And that's why some people want to avoid it is because it feels right from the start. We'd recognize we're crossing a threshold into something new, something different, and something challenging. So let's take a simple example of this process. Not, not necessarily the, the deep soul journey, but let's take a simple example of vacation. I decide I, I get a call, but I want to go on vacation somewhere. And so I enter into the search mode. What does that vacation look like? Where do I want to go? Do I want to go to Belize? Do I want to go to Tequila? You know, where do I want to go for vacation? It's a tough choice, you know. And, and, but eventually we have to choose. We have to move from dream, the dreaming about it phase to actually booking the vacation. Where am I going to go? I'm going to choose this place. If you're like me, this brings up some of our dysfunctional thoughts and behaviors. What if it's not the right place? Now that I booked Belize, maybe I should have gone to you know, Pango Pango or someplace like that, or, or taken a, uh, gone to Cambodia and helped build houses, or gone to Africa and help uh, you know, install new water facilities or whatever. Maybe I should have done something else. What if it's not right? Can I afford it? Do I deserve it? Is it safe? Oh, I just heard about another wonderful place. Back into search mode again. Maria Nemeth calls this trouble at the border. It's where we begin to move from the metaphysical, from our ideas, into the physical, from idea to action. And we have to cross this border, otherwise we just metaphysical. Along the way, as we do this path, as we walk this path, we have to book airlines and hotels and cars. We might have to update our wardrobe and our luggage. We might have to get up early and go through all the airline boarding process. And along the way, some of the initial glamour of the idea that we first saw, oh, I'm just gonna lay on a beach, begins to fade because all of a sudden there's this other process involved. As we deal with the realities involved, and this, this is the third step. It's known as the struggle or effort stage. And I want to be clear that struggle does not mean suffering. There's an effort that we put in. But it doesn't mean that we have to struggle. The climb is an effort. But the you know, suffering, as they say, is optional. Rumi said, if you can't smell the fragrance, don't come into the garden of love. And that's a capital L love. If you, don't, if you can't smell the fragrance, don't come into the garden of love. If you are unwilling to undress, don't enter the stream of truth. This stage is about doing the spiritual work, doing the deeper work. It's about undressing from our old beliefs. 
you know, in a lot of uh, Asian temples, and, and also you see this in some of the Catholic churches, but in the Asian temples, you'll see outside the temple, there's what are called foo dogs, kind of tigers or lions. They're fierce looking. Uh, and in the you know, Catholic churches, you know, sometimes outside, and you'll see gargoyles, you know, and, and like that. And they're meant, to, they're put there to remind us to pay attention, to be aware that we're entering a place that is dangerous and we can't just casually walk into it. I remember one of my friends talking about her meditation teacher when she was in Thailand studying or, or, or I don't remember, one of the Southeast Asian countries studying. And they were out walking one day and all of a sudden the, the uh, teacher goes, tiger. And she goes, oh, you know, and, and the meditation teacher and looked around and turned to her and said, and that's why I want you to do your meditation is with that attention, that fierceness of attention. And so it's a reminder that as we enter this path, we need to be fiercely aware, fiercely awake. And as we choose a spiritual path, the fantasies and the illusions fall apart, which is the very work itself. It's exactly what's supposed to happen. The there's this disillusionment so that we can see the reality. There's a um, Stevie Nicks song, Fleetwood Mac song, where... The, the chorus is, did she make you cry? Did she make you break down? Shatter your illusions of love. The path will shatter your illusions of love. That's what it's meant to do. And the reason we want to shatter the illusions of love is so that we can see clearly the reality of love. In the, the book, The Screwtap, Screw Tape Letters, which is by C.S. Lewis. Some of you may know C.S. Lewis as the writer of the Chronicles of Narnia, but he wrote this book called The Screw Tape Letters. And Screw Tape is his name for the devil, and the devil is the narrator of, of this particular story. And he tells of a young man who joins a church. And at first, his expectations are extremely high, and this is going to be a wonderful spiritual community and, and all that. But soon, he sees the humanity of his fellow churchgoers. Some of them are fat with double chins. Others sing off-key. Still others dress oddly or they squirm in their pews and squeak during the, during the, the talks and, the, and that. And, and, oh, my God, they aren't spiritual. They aren't spiritual, as I like to say. You know, our illusion of what we think spiritual is. And Screwtape goes on to say that this disenchantment is all part of God's plan. He calls God the enemy. He says it's this brilliantly devious plan that, that the enemy uses. He says, that, and it occurs on the threshold of every human endeavor. When the boy who fell in love with Greek mythology starts to actually buckle down and learn to learn Greek, there's this effort involved, there's this threshold. When the lovers who got married in a haze of idealized love, and oh, it's so beautiful and so wonderful, begin the real task of learning to live together. It's a transition from dreamy aspirations to laborious doing. Take a breath. But, says Screwtape, once they get through this initial dryness, this threshold successfully, they become much less dependent on emotion and much more difficult to knock off course. This stage is the most challenging, and yet it's called the true work of spirit. Well, we spend much of our early life learning to acquire. We bring, we're bringing stuff in. This is the stage where the struggle of the heart and the mind is to learn to let go, to learn to release. In Zen, I was, I was always told that Zen is not about acquiring, it's about letting go. It's letting go of. 
It's the struggle to see God in everything, that divine nature in everything, to shift our vision to see the extraordinary and the miraculous in the ordinary, in every little thing. But to do so, we need to let go of the central beliefs which have kept us from seeing God, or great capital G, good, in everything. You know, I've, I've talked about one of my early teachers saying that love brings up anything unlike itself for the purpose of healing and release. Love brings up anything unlike itself. I don't like that part. But it's for the purpose of healing and release. Okay, if I got it. I'll do that. You know, and I got to walk that, that little path last Sunday. Some of you um, were, were witness to that process where a voice that sounded like it was somebody else's voice, it, it looked external. It, it, was, it was that person. I got my finger pointed out here. It was that person. But it perfectly embodied my own shadow. It perfectly embodied the part of me that was challenging the vision of living as love in a world of love. And there's a little part of my mind that chatters away and goes, oh, that's just a bunch of BS. That's never going to happen. All that stuff. And it perfectly expressed the lifelong voice that I've had that says, you did it all wrong. Yeah, I've been living with that since I was a child. And it also expressed the voice that I have and the feeling that I sometimes have of I wasn't included. I talked about that, uh, an experience I had about that last uh, February at the leadership conference and how I got to work with it and face it and, and walk through it again. And I carry all those voices within me. Big visions bring up big resistance. If I'm really going to go for a big vision, if we as a community are really going to go for a big vision, it brings up our big resistance for the purpose of healing and release. Rumi says that God will seem deceitful as long as we are. God will seem deceitful as long as we are. See, we like to point our fingers at the people out there. They're the problem. Don't anybody besides is anybody besides me? Okay, one person. Okay, I got a couple of hands up there. Okay. We like to point the fingers at people out there and not notice where that trait lives within us. And it's difficult for the ego, it can be difficult for the ego to, to see this as it faces the mirror and sees its own reflection back. We want to say, no, it's that person, and yet part of that person lives within me. And the ego sees this reflection and it judges it as unacceptable, and thus ourselves as unacceptable, as well as that other person. Last week I, I did a quoted Florida Scott Maxwell, who said that life does not accommodate you, it shatters you. Every seed destroys its container or else there would be no fruition. See, we're all comfortable like little chicks in a shell, and it's, it's comfortable accepting we're outgrowing it. And eventually, you know, as, as comfortable as it is, we have to peck our way out of it. The, the butterfly has to move from the stage of being safe in the cocoon to fight its way out of it. And the baby has to leave the womb in order to move into birth, no matter how wonderful and warm and comfortable that, that womb was. We also discover, in addition to the finger pointing and those voices out there, how we use habituation to numb ourselves. This habit of being comfortable in our little shell, in our way of doing it, it reduces our consciousness 
so that it doesn't take in either the pain or the beauty of life. When we numb out the pain, we also numb out our experience of the beauty of life, the passion of life. And so at the sunsets and the chirping of the birds and the, the taste of ice cream, all these tastes that were so wonderful when we were children and, and young and we were so delighted by them. I have a little three-year-old grandson and it's so fun to, I get videos of him being delighted by all these little things. And by the time we hit our 40s or 50s or 60s, oh yeah, it's in our sunset. I'm going to go back to my work project here. I'm going to you know, go back to whatever I'm doing. Oh yeah, I've had a thousand ice cream cones. Yeah, I'll have one. But, you know. but we lose that, that freshness, that delight because they're all dimmed and numbed. So how do we start to shift our perceptions? How do we start to break through these patterns to start to see more clearly? I'm going to give you two processes that I use. My first mantra is there's only one life. Whenever I encounter anything that looks like separation, that looks like division, that looks like it's out there, and that can be an illness in my body, that can be somebody else saying something that I don't like, I remind myself, time out, time out. There is only one life. I can still hear Ernest Holmes did a talk where he, he talks about there's only one. One, 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 one. And I can still hear that voice in my head. There is only one life. There isn't me and then somebody or something out there. There's only one life. It's all a consciousness, a capital C consciousness becoming ever more aware of itself. And I have choice. I can either participate, which in, is tough in the short run and much easier in the long run. Or I can pretend to believe that all is separate and disconnected, which is easy to do up front, but far more painful down the road. The second mantra that I use is attention. I've shared the, uh, the story of the Zen master who was asked, what's the secret to enlightenment? And he says to his student, attention. And the student says, well, yes, I know that's the first step. But what, what's, what comes after that? And he says, the first step is attention. The second step is attention. The 100th step is attention. And the student is frustrated by now. And he says, well, then what do you mean by attention? And the master says, ah, by attention, I mean attention. It's our second step. It's our practicing of mindfulness because mindfulness breaks habituation. Habituation is the obvious opposite of mindfulness. It's mindlessness. It's not paying attention. It's just going along on our regular track as the same, same old, same old. Practicing mindfulness restores our, our truer sight to where we can see. It's, we see. We see and experience life not based on our learned beliefs, but on a clear perception of what is right before me right now. And so we walk this path, we take the climb. And what we, what's important to know is that at some point in time, we eventually come to stage four, which is the breakthrough stage. And we'll talk about that and the return stage next week, because we will return, but not as we were. But we have to do this work. We have to do this challenging work of walking the spiritual path, of looking deep within in order to move forward from it. You know, Alex uh, Perlman did our, our meditation before the service this morning, and he read from the book, What's in the Way is the Way. What's in the Way is the Way by Mary O'Malley. And I love that book. I've quoted from it uh, a number of times before. I did, did a series of talks last year from it. What's in the way is the way. And as we start to walk that path, as we start to do that climb,
we start to get into the climb itself. We start to settle in and it starts to become the new way of doing things so that we can do that. But recognizing that it's not just a life is hard and then you die sort of thing. But it's a climb that lifts us to a breakthrough, to a new level, to a new plateau, to a new way of being. So I invite you this week to walk that path. And so for this week, three spiritual practices to support you in walking that path. The first one is pay attention. Pay attention. Make the time to notice the sunset or the sunrise. Take the time to notice the taste of your food. Take the time to notice the chirping of the birds. You know, I was sitting here just while Alex was doing the meditation earlier watching and, and it looked like it was snowing outside because there were all these little fluffy white seed pods were just drifting by and they were running, you know, rising and falling on the, on the currents of the wind. There's still a few of them out there. It was beautiful. It was miraculous. It was stunning just to see it. It's an everyday occurrence. It's just, it's just seed pods, but it's beautiful. And so can we take the time to see that, to experience that? Second, notice where you are judging life. Notice where you're judging. This is part of the pay attention in a way. Notice where you're judging other people. Notice where you're judging experiences. Notice where you're judging yourself. Just notice. Don't beat yourself up, but just pay attention and notice it. And ask yourself, who's doing the judging? Is this really my true soul vision? Or is this my set of beliefs that thinks it should be a certain way? And finally, the third process to sit with a mantra. And the mantra that I want to suggest is, it's Ernest Holmes' prayer. There is only one life. That life is God's life. That life is perfect. That life is my life now. And I want to speak to that word perfect. So I've had people give me pushback on that word perfect. But it's not perfect. There's a story of a, of a farmer who has a beautiful farm, the kind you would take photographs of. It's just a gorgeous farm. And somebody one day compliments him on the farm and says, God has surely blessed you with this farm. And the farmer says, yes, God has blessed me. But you should have seen it when he had it all to himself. And there's two ways of experiencing that. Number one is, yes, we have to participate in the role of creation and start to, to make things in the way we want. There's a different way of, of experiencing that also. And that is that as an ecologist, we might look and say that when God had it all to himself, there was a perfection in what we, from our perspective, from our belief systems, judged as a mess. Brambles and leaves and underbrush and trees and, and all and dirt and bugs and all this stuff. But there's a perfection if we understand the ecology of how all of that works. And that is the perfection that I'm talking about, not the intellectually based, it should look this way, perfection, but the, this challenges me into a new level of experiencing creativity beyond my ideas of how it should be, beyond ideas of right thinking and wrong thinking. And so there's only one life. That life is God's life. That life is perfect. Perfect doesn't necessarily match my idea of it, and yet it's perfect. And that life is my life now. I invite you to trust the path of your soul and to walk that path, to get out of your car, go to the trailhead, put your foot on the path, and go one foot after the other. I'm going to close with a, another Rumi poem quote, uh, and then we'll do our affirmation. 
And Rumi says, a baby pigeon on the end of the nest, on the edge of the nest, hears the call and begins his flight. How can the soul of the seeker not fly when a message arrives saying, you have been trapped in life like a bird with no wings in a cage with no doors or windows. Come, come back to me. When the door opens, walk on the path where abundance awaits you, where everything old becomes new and never look back. Let us do our affirmation together. And the affirmation is that mantra. Let me pull it up here so we can read it together. And so say this with me. We'll say it a couple of times through. There is only one life. That life is God's life. That life is perfect. That life is my life now. Once again, there is only one life. That life is God's life. That life is perfect. That life is my life now. 